This is the Build Our Future podcast. We shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us. A window into the past, present, and future of the construction industry. There's still a lot of unlocked doors. Clarity with design, craftsmanship with the build. There's still a lot to find out and do and invent. Collaboration for our future. You know, I don't think it's the end of the invention. The Build Our Future podcast with Raul Faria. Let's build. Begins now. Welcome to the Builder Future Podcast. Today we have Linda Kafka. She's the founder of the Living in Place Network that we're going to talk about extensively today. Just to start out, I wanted to give you a platform to let us know a little bit more about you and where you came from and how you started this network. Thank you, Raul. I'm really pleased to be here today with you. Yes, I am the founder of the Living in Place Network, but I'm also a director of trade relations over at Kaplan's, and I am also the organizer and founder of the Livable Environment Conference and the host of the Livable by Design podcast. So lots of things going on in my life. So many hats. Where do you find the time? They're all interconnected. At the end of the day, it's all part of the predominantly residential built environment. So it makes it really easy because from one platform to the other, I I can transition because we're really talking about the same thing. I want to backtrack just a wee bit for you, just to kind of give you an idea of how I connected to this industry. I'm a marketing person, always have been, have had my own business, but it was in 2009 where I was actually hired at the International Center to spearhead the revitalization of 250,000 square feet of space that was manufacturer showrooms in the furniture industry and their audience predominantly or their target audience were dealers. And when we were in that 2008 recession, many of these manufacturers were going bankrupt and, and the facility had a tremendous amount of space that they needed to lease and they had no idea what they were going to do with it. So it made natural sense to work with the design community and create something that was lacking in the Canadian market, which was truly a trade-only design center. And so that's where I got my start in really connecting with the interior designers and grew out of that in the decorating community. I was a resource, and and what I did with that facility was this really built community, and I created a lot of educational events that supported small independent business. And it supported the industry as a whole in terms of everything from latest trends to all different kinds of things that were happening. And what was great about that was it wasn't me so much coming up with the ideas of what to talk about or or what education platforms to present to the designers. It was really a design community. And part of that experience at that design center allowed me to be part of the various industries. So what do I mean by that? I was part of the Decorating and Design Association on their board for six years. I was part of a build where all many of your listeners are build members. If I wasn't volunteering, I was helping to organize. I was creating events. I was also part of the Toronto Society of Architects. I was part of the Interior Designers of Canada. I sat on that board for two years. And so why is this all relevant? Because all of those different associations to some degree, work in silos, and they don't often connect with each other, but yet they're all integrated in a sense where a designer will hire a builder or hire a contractor or hire an architect, or an architect might hire those individuals, or the renovator might hire those. And so they were all interconnected, but nobody was talking to each other. The whole concept of that design center, even though it was really focused on furnishings, started to evolve. And it was really through conversation in 2013 that 
started to realize that there was a growing demand and growing interest and lack of serious lack of knowledge on what back in those days they were really calling aging in place. And what did that really mean? And so as the business entrepreneur, educator, resource that I was, I started asking the questions and I reached down to the United States and I discovered there was well-established training courses in the United States to really help small businesses and our design-built sector to learn about this. And so I started bringing the training up and it just started to evolve to where we are today. My roots really started back then in the whole living in place, aging in place. And I've taken a lot since then. I've taken a lot of courses to really educate myself so that I understand the language. And so fast forward to today, that's how I got to be where I am. So it sounds like a light bulb got turned on with regards to aging in place. But since then, it sounds like it's evolved to something a lot more than that. Because I don't see anything about aging or age of a person. It's more about living in a home as opposed to how old you are and then living in a home. So how did that evolve, that transition and that thought process evolve, that this potential gap in the market, in the residential sector was actually much bigger than just age? The aging in place category is still there. It still exists. But I personally, myself, chose to change the language. And when I chose to change the language to living in place, because through the courses I had taken, because I am CAP certified, that's Certified Aging in Place Professional. And, and then I evolved and I took the next level, which was another independent training course out of the States, which was CLIP. That's a Certified Living in Place Professional. I started to see the language differently. And when I spoke to the design community up here in Toronto and uh, the design build community, I started noticing more acceptance when I used different words. So it really evolved, but it wasn't, you know, it was evolving organically everywhere. Because when you think about the idea or the premise of where aging in place comes from and why that came about, when you look at all of that, why should it just be for a particular age? Why shouldn't it be for everybody? Because what you do for aging in place, renovations, home modifications, new builds really serves everybody. And if you get your hand put in your face enough times from the designers and the design community, you start to say, okay, the language I'm using is wrong. And so I really loved talking about living in place because it should be everything from that expectant mother, that infant, those teens, all the way through right up to a senior, we should be truly designing better spaces for everybody because we don't know what life brings us. And why should a young child be challenged with a space as much as somebody that's elderly? So getting back to living in place, like we went through this process of how you change the verbiage so it was more acceptable. What is living in place fundamentally and why do you feel it's so important? It's really about being able to live in your space for a lifespan like I said earlier, we really don't know what the challenges we face physically, mentally, or whatever those are. And you know what? It's really about having a space. If you really want to drill it down and peel it down to the raw basics, it's really about how does your space adapt to you over your lifespan as opposed to you adapting to your space. That's the easiest way to describe it. There's lots of, you Google it, and there's tons of different ways to describe it. But just think about that. Our space should really adapt to us throughout our lifespan. And if it does, then we really are in an environment that serves us well. So I like to keep it simple. Is this something more on a 
global level? Like, are you able to coordinate or collaborate with other environments, establishments, and other parts of the world that may be a little bit ahead or maybe a little bit behind and you guys doing more for global? Because this is not really necessarily a source of concern for here in Canada or in Toronto, for that matter. It could be worldwide. Or do you feel like it's pretty unique and you're kind of spearheading this right now? No, I'm not spearheading it. I'm joining this movement and we all are. And we're all at it at different degrees. It's really driven by the boomer generation because it is the biggest generation. It is the biggest aging population. But you know what, if you really look at what does it mean to live in place and, you know, and as humans within our built environment, you know, we're all looking for safety and security and comfort ease of use and wellness, and we want it to look beautiful. And so all of that resonates with everybody around the world, but it's definitely not something that we're spearheading here in Canada. We're actually about 10 years behind the U.S. as we talk about this. And the world, if you look to countries like Australia, for instance, living in place is part of their built environment out there, and it has been for a long time. It was really moved forward because of policy that was put in place out there, but it's almost rare to find a home that doesn't have the features to live in place. It's odd. It's strange. It's like, what do you mean you don't have that over in Canada? My family roots are from Europe and I look at what they do over there and they are so much further ahead. Other Scandinavian countries, the UK, it's not anything that's really Canadian. It is global. It's just that in Canada, we, even though we talk it, we haven't really moved the needle forward and really come together as an industry to really start changing the way we're building things. It's interesting you say that because I come from the commercial world and here in Ontario, they've made some significant changes over the last few years to incorporate more, as they put it on the commercial side, accessible washrooms, accessible spaces. And it's interesting that even me, myself, I never actually thought about that context as it relates to on the residential side. I'm sure there are tons of interchangeable terms when it comes to this. For me, in the commercial world, essentially, we look at universal design and accessible design. Those are the things. And really, that has to do with access to a space and use of their facilities. Can you let me know what some of the other words that you said maybe weren't so popular before? And just some basic insight as to how these terms can be extrapolated into somebody's house. I love having these kinds of conversations because the commercial world, as we know, are driven by the building code. And when you talk about accessibility, and you know we have in the building code in part three, you've got, and I'm taking right now currently the Rick Hansen certification course, and it's all for the commercial world. There are strict rules and regulations in terms of what has to be done for accessibility. Accessibility, when I hear that word, I think immediately of the code. When you talk universal design, I immediately think about the seven principles, which can be implied to the built environment. It can be applied to products. It's something that every designer is taught in school, architecture. As a matter of fact, I am right now enrolled at the University of Buffalo and I am taking two courses in universal design. And so to really drill down and understand it, but they're principles. And you're right, there are a lot of interchangeable phrases like adaptable space, universal design, accessibility, living in place, aging in place. And you know, what does that really all mean? And at the end of the day, it's important to understand 
the different terms and where they fit into it. So for instance, somebody that might be a renovator and talks about accessibility, he's going to have a different view of what accessibility means to him in the residential built environment, because as you know, it's not driven by code. There is really no accessibility in the Ontario Building Code for Residential. When you talk to somebody that's in the commercial world and you say accessibility, immediately you're thinking about the entrance into a building. The push buttons, the automatic door operators, the size of the doors, where the grab bars are in the washroom, there's tons, tons, tons. And it's beyond even mobility because you also have to address people that are sight impaired and hearing impaired. So you're looking at glare on surfaces and, you know, the list is endless and we can have a whole podcast on that just from what I've learned through the Rick Hansen's uh, certification program. But when you talk about residential, it means something completely different. And I think the understanding of those interchangeable terms is more important on the residential side because you are speaking sometimes to an architect who might work in commercial and residential. You're speaking to perhaps a decorator or a designer or an interior designer or a renovator. And I think it's really important to have a, at least a basic understanding of what those terms are. So if you are on the residential side and you talk to me about universal design, I'm immediately thinking of principles. And so when somebody says to me, I design a space and we use universal design in our space, that really doesn't mean very much to me because what are the features that you're actually doing to help somebody that is aging within their space or that has small children? And so, you know, let's talk more about the features that you're putting in. As a matter of fact, I came across a statistic that was really surprising. It is an American statistic because we don't tend to have a lot of the same statistics available to us up here in Canada. But it said that in a lot of um, residential design projects in the United States, only 1% of universal design principles are being used. And I was kind of surprised to hear that. And I think that you might think you're doing all of the right things, but if you really look at the terms, you might realize, wait a second, I'm actually not. So it's important. I think when you talk to me about aging in place, right away, what the picture that paints in my mind is that silent generation, that senior citizen, that 75-year-old plus that is okay with institutional grab bars being put into their bathroom. When you talk about living in place, right away, I start to think about a family, young people, someone as young as yourself or younger. You want to think about they might have a sports injury at some point in their life. How do they maneuver through that space? People that are tall and short in stature. So it's not really about an age. It's not really about an ability. It's not really about your size. It's just designing spaces with features that could be really for everybody. Part of it is also the naturalized mindset that, speaking from a contractor's perspective, we first right go to the code to say, hey, is this even allowed, number one? Number two, there might be a myth out there that incorporating some of these living in place features will be more expensive. So why do I have to overextend if it's not in the code? Now, I know the Ontario Building Code anyway has not necessarily changed over the last little while. But as I understand it, there were certain updates done to certain sections. Can you let me know what some of those changes were? And just for the record, I do not have my BCNI and I have not read the building code cover to cover. And if anybody does need need people in that, you, yourself and, and myself, we all have contacts. But you know, there are things that are changing within the building code. So I think probably the first big thing that has happened recently is we all know that Bill C-81 was passed in August 
this last August. And that's really an act to ensure a barrier-free Canada. And that really addresses the commercial world and part three of the building code, I guess. And the national building code will be changing. And I know it probably takes a couple of years before it will come into Ontario or into the other provinces. We are going to see changes happening as we move towards Canada becoming one of the most accessible countries in the world. And when you look at the different provinces, unlike the states that kind of has one overarching, we're more each province doing their own. So I think uh, Ontario has a goal when they want to be fully or, or move towards a more accessible. Alberta's kind of competing with that, wanting to be the first province to really be fully accessible and so on. And that really speaks on the more commercial level. But when it comes down to the home and residential and part nine, which is small buildings and, and homes, we're not seeing massive amounts of changes. I think that we will over time, but we are starting to see little things happen. Like I believe it was in January when they did an update and the building code hasn't been updated since 2013, I believe. And, and it's usually a four-year period of when they do the major updates. But little things have started to change. So I believe it was in January, they had a new update with regards to stud wall reinforcement. And if you look at, to reference the building code, look at 9.1.2.3 stud wall reinforcements. And so in that, you'll find that the wood wall or studs or sheet steel wall studs that enclose the main bathroom in a dwelling. There is changes in that. So if it's for a water closet, adding a grab bar, a shower, adding a grab bar or a bathtub, adding a grab bar, the updates are now referring back to what's in part three of the building code. You're having to put reinforcements or plywood behind the walls. So you're seeing little things like that. You're also seeing things in the fire alarm systems that, that have been updated. So again, I'm not an expert in it, but I can tell you there have been some minor updates and I really encourage you to relook at that. Or if you're not familiar with it, if it's not your area, reach out to people that are knowledgeable in it. There are s small updates that will, you know, if affect your projects when you're working on them. And I think that in the next few years, we're going to see a considerable amount of changes that are going to start to come to really address it. See them in residential, it's going to be challenging because it's always been a big challenge on how do you bring that and, and regulate that into the well, you know, I understand what you mean on a macro level, but the example that you just gave with increasing the size of a wood stud for a potential future use of something is something that we do in the commercial world all the time. Sometimes we don't know if we need something in a certain area, so we just put plywood and that's always there so you can secure it. You can secure a certain product or anything else to it. I think similarly in the residential field, maybe part of the whole design standards, like you said, that should be changed is more in terms of, okay, let's put in the framework to support this when it's needed. Maybe you don't need to put in all the grab bars yet, but at least the support mechanisms are there without having to totally rip down the wall and then redo it properly. But you know what? The whole grab bar issue, and I really hate to just reduce this to grab bars, but when I think about the grab bar issues, I don't need a grab bar in my home. So why am I going to spend that dollar? But here's the interesting thing is, is my mother, she's currently now in a wheelchair, but when she was mobile and, and did come to my home, I wasn't thinking about her. I was always selfishly thinking about myself. If I have elderly 
individuals that come to visit me. If I have small children, like the bathroom is the number one area for falls. Anybody can slip and fall. You don't have, it's not about an age. And so why aren't we just putting them in? And if you look at products that are out there, we've got some beautiful products that are coming out on the market that look like they're integrate beautifully into the space. They look like towel bars, but they actually are grab bars. And you know what I think the challenge is, is I think the challenge is, is how do we as renovators and contractors and and designers explain to our clients why it's important to add this in to justify that extra cost. And, you know, when you look at aging in place and living in place and, you know, and all the different features that can go with it, there are lots of places within the home, but the two most important places in the home are the bathroom and the kitchen. And that's the two areas that you really have to focus on. And that's where I think if you have really good deep conversation with your clients on the importance of doing this. Don't even think about, hey, you know, Mrs. Smith, when you get older, you might need a grab bar installed. The conversation should be, do you have your parents come to visit you? Do you have small children or grandchildren or are you a family? You should really look at the safety of people in general. How do you justify a cost of $500? I don't know, you'd be better at quoting it, but the cost of adding that plywood behind the wall so you can install that grab bar earlier on long before I become a senior needing it to keep me safe within that environment. How do you justify the safety aspect? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think you raised it earlier. I think potentially it's why it might take a little while and not just to do with the code. It's 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 changing mindsets, changing the way we approach things. Like why do you have to prepare now and have it ready future? Because there are people potentially in our lives now that could potentially require some of these additional safety features. Now, you mentioned some contractors and stuff like that. Are there any trades or suppliers or contractors out there that are leading or doing more of this and incorporating more of this living in place design and build right now? There are. Surprisingly, I come across them more regularly than I thought. And, you know, and some of them you yourself know, and I believe you might even have, you may even be interviewing or have thought to interview or have already interviewed some of them. A couple of years ago, I think it's going to be more than a year ago, I had Lifestyles by Barron's take a course in CAPS. And what was interesting from their perspective is they really wanted to address that aging market because there was a family member that was a senior and they wanted to redesign homes. And so that whole idea, you know, you look at uh, companies like Daniels Corporation. Now, of course, it is multi-unit, but they are probably one of the leaders in doing multi-units and what they're putting in. And, And they have a lot of really interesting things that they're doing within their spaces. I just two weeks ago spoke to a company called Hummingbird Homes. Not only are they well AP certified and they're passive house certified, but the whole idea of how you maneuver through that space or through their custom homes is top of mind for them. We also have companies like Gaddy Group. Gaddy Group just started looking at all of this and looking to see how it's going to fit into their business model and start designing spaces that are more for living in place. And then you've got companies like Supercool. If you don't know Supercool, architect design firm, they are really focusing on smaller homes in the suburban area and really trying to change that whole design model to make them more living in place, adaptable, inclusive environments. And then the one I love and it's top of mind right now is, and it's a friend of yours and mine, is Sustainable Architects. And I think it was their six-point resident. Now, I believe correct me if I'm wrong, I think they just recently received a build award for one of their projects. 
you don't have to do anything but just go onto their website and look at that six-point resident. And you can immediately see right from the front door and the way they slope that landscape, right away, that house is what we call visitable. So anybody can come in there. If you have a walker, a wheelchair, a baby carriage, if you're a delivery person bringing in something, it doesn't matter. It's just that they thought of it. And I really, truly applaud these companies because they're not trying to say, hey, look at me, we're leading the way. They're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. And so I really encourage your listeners to start to pay attention. You know, what can we do or what can you do? Because not only is it the right thing, but it actually can really impact your bottom line. And at the end of the day, we do this, everything you do, obviously has to have a profit. You know, This is not a not-for-profit. But the point is, is that if you're doing it and you do it right and you recognize what consumers are demanding out there, you will not be short of clients. You will not be short of business. You'll find yourself in a whole growth spurt, especially during this time that we're currently facing. It's interesting you were talking about the aspect of the people are just doing this. For the people that want to get into it, be it contractors or just regular individuals or architects, are there local training here in Canada available or is it more online or is it down in the U.S.? If people weren't sure how to start, are there some resources that they can start looking at? Absolutely. And I have to tell you, I'm just trying to rack my brain here because I have taken so many courses since 2013 and I don't think I've ever left my, I've never left Toronto with the exception of one small course that I did. And it was a training course. I did the CAPS training, the master trainer out of the National Association of Home Builders comes up to Toronto to do this at least four times a year. And I usually coordinate those events for her. I know that the Canadian Home Builders Association is looking to launch CCAPS. Uh, I'm not quite sure where that's at at this point. I know that they've licensed that from the United States and Canadianized it. So that's available. The CLIP training, which is the reason I'm very passionate about that is because it's the evolution of CAPS and it really opens your eyes to a greater audience and to not doing it just about age. It really encompasses everybody. So if you're a contractor or renovator and you specialize in younger families or multi-generational or whatever, they really address a lot of that. It's an online course that you can take, but it's also in person a couple of times during the year. We did the first one in September last year. We will have another one in September this year. So those are available. I do courses at the University of Buffalo on their IDEA, IDEA Center. It's the Center of Architecture. You can take courses there. The courses are endless. The Rick Hansen course that I take through George Brown, that was actually in person. That I have learned tremendous amount that I can adapt to the residential world through that. The wellness AP, I'm currently enrolled to do my wellness AP certification. That's all online. So a lot of this is online. It's not going to take away from the hours that you need to be on the project. So evenings, weekends, those are the kinds of times... The one thing too is with the clip training, it's two days. So it's in out real fast and it's done. Whereas the Rick Hansen was in person and it was eight days. It was four days in class. Then you waited two weeks and four days again in class. So there's a bit more of a time commitment. And for business owners, contractors, renovators, that's not always possible. But that was a long answer to a short question. But there is a lot out there. And if you can't do any of this, for any reason, there are webinars that you can just get onto that are a one hour webinar. I do them. Several others are doing them or listen to podcasts like yours and learn from that. That switch focus so much, but you touched on it a little bit earlier. 
We can do as much as we want in terms of training, learning about these things as a contractor, as a designer, as an architect. But how does it play a role for consumers, like the end product? By that, I mean is we've touched on a few of these concepts, lifespan of a home or visible home. How does all of that play in? And I think that it has to be packaged the right way so the end user can understand the actual need for something like this because you don't know what's going to happen. Plus, as you mentioned, people still visit the house and that may need something like this. So how does all of those kind of interlink with each other? Because that plays a vital role in actually implementing this. Absolutely. If the consumers don't know about it, you know, it becomes challenging. It almost reminds me a little bit of Apple and Steve Jobs. And, you know, you don't know that you needed an iPad or an iPhone or any of those devices until it actually came to market. But what's interesting is, is that the media is picking up on this. We're seeing more and more of this being shown on television shows. We're seeing more of this in the media. There's a lot of articles. Like I said earlier, it's being driven by the baby boomers. My mother's in a retirement home. I am not going to live that way. I think what we're seeing is this the generation of people that have parents to look after are saying, wait a second, I see how my mother was challenged or my parents were challenged coming through this space and I don't want that. They don't know where to go. Companies are producing products that are addressing this. So let's look at, for instance, I was down at the Cabus show in January, one of the hottest products down there, and we already know it existed, but it was uh, every stand that had bathroom fixtures was the washlet. A few years back, we wouldn't have been seeing the washlet, but now all of a sudden it's everywhere. So installing that and understanding, you know, to have that GFI plug near the toilets in case that down the road, they want to add that washlet. Consumers are looking at this and going, you know, I want that. I want to be able to. That's a good idea. I never thought about having multi-level counter heights or you're seeing different kinds of products that are showing up in magazines. And so I think what we're going to see is, especially because of what we've going through currently right now and people being trapped in their homes for the longest period, people are going to start asking, you know, why can't I? Where is this? Like, I saw this somewhere. I want this or we're challenged. I heard from an elevator company that their business in West of Toronto has just skyrocketed with adding elevators into their home. Five years ago, my mother's neighborhood, one of the families put an elevator in their suburban home in Scarborough, near the Scarborough Bluffs. And I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. Like an elevator in your home? I guess to answer that question is, is that it's going to be driven by the consumers because of the age, because what they're seeing in media, because what they're reading, because of the products that they're seeing at the stores. Our biggest barrier right now is the lack of professionals that are trained in this area to understand it. And so you are going to have listeners that say, oh, I know how to do this. And no doubt you probably do. But the thing is, is that installing an elevator or adding like uh, some of these elevators into a space or widening doors or doing things, there's going to be challenges that you as a professional are going to be faced. And I think getting up to speed on this, or if you're not aligning yourselves with team members that can help you, I think is going to be an important part right now until you are knowledgeable about how to do those. Like I'm sure not every contractor is comfortable doing a zero threshold shower because you may never have done one before. I think you're right. I think as you mentioned, you can put the GFI outlet close to the water closet. You could have the door wide opening. But those are just pieces to the puzzle. And I think having different professionals that have specialized or do specialize in different areas and collaborating together, you'll be able to put as many 
pieces of that puzzle together. And I think you're doing something like that coming up. Unfortunately, it did have to get postponed, as I understand it, because of the current climate. Can you tell me a little bit more about this conference that you are setting up? Yeah, thank you. I'm excited about it because, you know, working at the design center, I did almost, you know, 400 events. So I know events, I understand it. I listen to the design community. And the one thing I was hearing from every sector, whether it was renovators, contractors, builders, interior designers, decorators, architects, was that there was no common ground for people to come together and really have meaningful conversation with how we are designing and building our spaces. And for most part, we build based on aesthetics and we don't really build beyond that. We don't think about, we might put, like you said, you know, some of the features in, but we're really not doing it throughout that space. And so the conference that I'm launching is firstly Canada's first. And I'm really excited because the idea of of creating something that is a need for the industry and addressing something that we've all been talking about, but nobody's really kind of taken that bold step to get out there and do something and bring us all together. And you do learn, it's incredible the amount of information you as an entrepreneur and a small business will learn from others or a big business can learn from a small business. It's incredible when you have that opportunity to network, share resources, share ideas, and really learn from others that are an expert. So the conference, which originally was scheduled to be one day, really focus on residential, is getting a lot of interest from the commercial world to create a day two and have the commercial world part of it. And like you yourself, being in the commercial world, you recognize a lot of what you learn in that world can be applied into residential. So the conference was really born not because I said, hey, I want to do a conference, but because so many people in the industry said, we need a platform where we're all coming together. We want to have meaningful conversation. We want to make connections. We want to learn about products. We want to listen from uh, speakers that have depth of knowledge. And I'm at a different level from the next person. So I want to go to an event where I feel I'm going to get something out of it. So we created a day where you can almost a la carte, pick the speakers that are going to help you grow your business. I believe we'll have up to 25 on the first day and you can pick and choose. So if you're a newbie into this and you don't know anything, you've got a stream for you. If you're more experienced, we've got a stream for you, depending on what you're interested in. And then day two is really more commercial and a little overlap into the residential. But what's great about this is all of our associations from this industry, and there are many, have jumped on board and said, We want to support this. We want to support our members. So you don't have to be a member of an association to be part of this or attend it. If you do come, I can assure you, you will walk away saying, I am so glad I invested a day to come and really learn about this. I think it's going to fast track you. And at the end of the day, we do this with your business in mind. How am I going to grow your business? How are you going to make money off of this? And that's what you're going to walk away with, understanding how to really differentiate your company and grow your business. I can hear the passion. The one thing you never mentioned was actually the name of the conference. It's actually called the... (laughs) No, you didn't do that. It's actually called the Livable Environment Conference. It's quite the apt name with everything that you just discussed, right? So when is the conference? It's taking place on September 17th. I'm being optimistically cautious that we will come together as a community. The day two, which I would have liked to have had on the 18th, I'm being told by the venue, can be the 16th. So it's going to be, I'm hoping it's not official, but right now the the official date is September 17th, and we are looking at a day two to add to it. You can find details on livablecanada.com, livable spelt uh, L-I-V, 
ablecanada.com. I'm really excited about this. We've got some fantastic speakers. We've got changes that are going to come to the website with new speakers and more information. There's a training tab on there. If you don't even attend the conference, at least just go to the training tab and look at some of the training courses that are there for yourself. I think what's really important, and I'd love to leave your listeners with, it's reported by the Canadian Home Builders Association that the home modification industry is a $77 billion industry. And I believe new builds is something like $274 billion. Our boomer market accounts for about 70% of that spend. This is a big, massive money market in home modifications for you or in new builds for you, but you've got to start listening to what the consumers want and pay attention. That's what's going to differentiate you from the next person out there. That's what's going to help grow your business because although the consumers are not demanding it right now, that curb, that trend curve that we talk about, you're either in the game too early or you're in the game too late. And I really want to encourage your listeners, don't get into the game late because once it's flooded and everybody's out there and marketing themselves as that go-to person or company that really understands, it's going to be a harder game to get into. So look at your assets of your company, look at what you can bring to the table, look at where there are deficits and where you can learn. If you don't have the time to learn it, align yourselves with people who are willing to help you. I am one of those people. I generously give information all the time. I don't ask for anything. I just say, you know what? Buy a ticket to the conference and come and learn from others. I just got off a phone call with helping a a designer who's been out of studying for the last three years and she's getting back into the game and her focus, passive house wellness and living in place. And that's how she's going to differentiate herself. I think it's a fantastic resource as well. We talked about the importance of consumers. People who own a home or are looking to buy a home maybe should check out the website, maybe should come out and look at the conference and hear what everyone has to say, because it is an important aspect of this as well. I don't think a lot of people would actually put two and two together on a general sense, day-to-day level right now saying, yes, this is something I can actually use right now unless they're exposed to it. You don't know what you don't know. And eventually people start to identify and say, you know what, that makes sense. It's interesting because as builders and contractors and renovators, it's really important to look at the whole picture. And I just want to share one example that happened to me is that my partner and I have a house in Port Dover. A townhouse was newly built, loved it. We decided to sell our house in Hamilton, move out to Port Dover for the very reason that there was a one-step entry into the townhouse. It had an option for an elevator or you could just have the closet stacked it made perfect sense. Like I have a hip problem. I have lower back problems. I know I will have mobility issues. I most likely will have to have knee and hip replacement down the road. And I will not be able to do the stairs of a three-level townhouse. But to have an option to put an elevator in is a lot more cost affordable at the new build versus trying to modify a space down the road. We sold the place. (laughs) Why? Because it didn't dawn on me when we were looking at the plans, after all the education and training I have, I never realized that the bathroom to the off the master bedroom is 24 inches. And the side at the walk-in closet is 24 inches. And that's when all of a sudden it dawned on me and this red flag went up. And I thought, what's the point of having this elevator if I find myself temporarily in a mobility device and I can't even get into my own master bathroom? Now, the good thing about this house is it had a bedroom on the main floor. 
And I always thought, you know, if I ever had to, I could live off the main floor. But then I started doing the measurements in the bathroom off that bedroom. And I realized I could probably get a wheelchair or a mobility device into that, but it's not big enough to be able to really do a turn. And there's no way between the toilet and the shower, I was going to be able to transfer into the shower. I could send you the standard details. And on a commercial perspective on the universal turning radius, <laughs> I'm a wheelchair. So. And you know what? It's interesting because it's increased. We usually yep. do five feet and it's increased now to six. Because yes, it of has. Why? why? Because people of size, we've got an obesity issue. And so we've got more and more people into larger size wheelchairs. And so, you know, when you did that five foot radius turn, now we're up to six feet. But it's interesting. That's a really small thing that got overlooked by the builder. The other thing I think that we have to also look, and I know we, you know, we've only have so much time today, and I hope I can come back at a future session, but let's talk about wellness within the space. And so what does that mean? Because often people think wellness in the space, oh, we're, we're talking about air quality, but you know, it's not just air, it's light, it's water, it's fitness, it's comfort, it's your mind, it's nourishment, it's all of those things that make up a well space. And with the challenges that we have, regardless of what age, when you have health challenges, recovery is so important. Restorative sleep. Your mindset is so important and your environment, your surroundings are that much more important at that point. And as humans, we need the time for recovery. So when somebody says to me, I only sleep three hours a day, you know what? That's because your hormones are and, you know, all of that's out of whack because you need your sleep time to recover. And so let's look at the bedroom. How many of your builders or contractors think about putting sound producing windows in the bedroom area? You don't need the whole house, but just in the bedroom area, you can have a really undisturbed sleep. Our current townhouse that we're in right now guess what? There were crickets or chirping or maybe they're frogs. I don't know what they are down in the back. I can hear them through the windows and I can't sleep because of those damn things out there. Sorry, but you know, it's like... I've got a funny story about that and your concept of you don't know what you don't know. I lived downtown Toronto, right on the water for about 14 years. Me and my wife moved up to like partial country and the first three or four weeks I could not sleep because it was so quiet. And then now when I go downtown and I stay there, the noise pollution, I can't sleep. So it's so funny how our body conditions, but also I find I'm much more calmer now living outside the city. And this is just for me personally, because of the quiet, because usually my day-to-day is pretty busy. So I now really enjoy the quiet. Whereas when you're downtown, there's so many noises, the streetcars, everything else. So when I go back down, now I really see the difference with how much sound actually comes in and how that's actually affecting my mindset. I agree. And you know what? And if you look at the millennial generation, a lot of them are looking at quiet zones. Some of them are talking about digital detox zones. We're talking about yoga areas or meditation areas. And so when you are designing or renovating spaces, you can look at a space within the home and as the renovator, builder, designer, whatever your role is, is ask those questions. You know, where are you finding that restorative space within your home? And look at that. And then when you want to talk about is we also want to talk about things like our circadian rhythm. And so one of the big hottest topic trends in the wellness world right now is circadian lighting. Well, what does that mean? Typically, if you look at your lighting in your home and that's changing, the manufacturers are changing those products 
fairly quickly now too. I have that bright LED white light during the daytime. I need it for when I'm working in my office space or whatever. But at nighttime, I want it to be warm. I want to feel like I'm around that glow of a campfire. And I can't get that using the same light bulb all the way through the home. And so if you look at the space, creating a space almost like, you know, we often have heard consumers are wanting to invest in nesting, investing in nesting. And as we start to do more staycations and we're not traveling as much because of our current situation, now's the time for this industry to really capitalize on how can I create a really great environment, not just on from a mobility or a, you know, perspective, but from other perspectives in restorative, how do I create a space that offers restorative sleep or recovery wellness? And so all of this goes hand in hand. And, you know, we don't all have the answers, but if we as a community come together and reach out and support each other, there's a lot of information we can share. And you might not do all of it in your business, but if you do some, then the great thing is, is you've done something really great for your client. You do this because you're in it to do good for somebody. Otherwise, pick another profession. Yeah. I'd love to have you on to talk about that because just, it's funny because even though it's not part of the code, the general trend now in interior design spaces is spatial design. It's on creating quiet zones and yoga spaces and what they call breakout rooms. They'll have like almost like a telephone booth where you, you go in and you make your phone call. So other people, you don't hear that noise. So it's trending on the commercial side again. But it's going to come to residential. And so in that term, and I didn't mention it earlier, but that's what we call adaptable space. I did say in the beginning of this podcast, we, I did say, you know, we want our spaces to adapt to us versus us adapting to them. So think about, we have that open concept. We decided to rip out all those walls, create those big open concept rooms. We really like that modern look. But now what? If you look at some of these people that are frontline workers in this situation, they're out there on the front lines. They've got to come home to family. Where do they isolate themselves so they don't infect their family? And so we're hearing people saying, you know, oh, I've put a trailer on my driveway and I'm living, I'm a nurse and I'm living there so my kids don't get sick or my family doesn't get sick. But what if, what if we thought about creating walls that sliding pocket doors that could close off an area, close off sections, or give us that quiet time or allow us to be, you know, multi-purpose spaces so we can create an office when we need it and open it up as a play space when we don't. So adaptable space. Like I said, I'd love to have you on again, and we can definitely talk about the adaptable design, wellness, spatial design. There's so much to not just talk about, but to execute on and start start putting into practice. So I'm very grateful you came here. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I know I learned a lot. Like I said, my experiences have always been on the commercial side. This is not going away. You know, jump on to, to this now or jump on to it later, but at some point you will be part of this whole living in place wellness um, world because that's what the consumers want. Wouldn't you want that? I completely agree with you. Last thing you want to do is have your family come over and then you can't provide their basic needs or necessities. And so now you have to, you know, scramble. And, you know, at the end of the day, everything begins at home. Everything begins at home. So you know what? Why not make it the best possible place we could? Thank you so much, Linda, for joining me today and everything that you're doing for an inclusive home design. Um, and if this episode resonates with you or somebody in your family or you want to know more, uh, there are tons of links. And Linda's mentioned a few companies that specialize in this very field for you to contact. Thank you. 
Our next show, Dan Robinson from Dan Robinson Construction Management joins us to talk about the differences and similarities between smart homes and home automations and how we can continue to incorporate some of this technology into our lives and what the best way to do that and when is the right time. Join us next week to get some fun tips and tricks on what you can do in your home, whether it's during construction or if you're just living in that space at the moment.